Few things terrify me more than people who live together but don't share food. Maybe it's just the Jewish mother in me, but I can't help but feel that the image of housemates marching up to the microwave one by one to reheat their sad spag bowls is a symptom of something much more serious. To the nuclear family, this kind of bizarre individualism is anathema. But as soon as we cohabit with people we're not blood related to, is suddenly each man for himself? We talk a lot on the left about the privatization of the NHS. But what about the privatization of care within the nuclear family? We criticize the hostile environment, but what about the border policing that privileges family over friends? We bemoan the housing crisis, but what about the fact that one of the only ways to live affordably in London is by moving in with your partner? We talk about bosses and billionaires, but what about the abusive boyfriends that capitalism means we can't escape and whose existence means we can't escape capitalism? It's one thing identifying these problems with the nuclear family, but few people are brave enough to offer alternatives to it. That's what my colleague at Navara, Sophie K. Rosa, has done with her new book. Radical Intimacy argues that in relating to one another in more intimate and expansive ways has the potential not only to engender happiness, but to breed revolution. Hi, Sophie. You are by no means a stranger to the Navara studio, but nevertheless, welcome to Navara FM. Hi, Rivka. Thank you. So... Millions of people are striking for livable wages. Trans people are demanding the right to just go for a wee in peace, let alone have access to healthcare. What is so radical about intimacy? Yeah, so of course it depends how we define intimacy, but according to how I've thought about intimacy in the book, intimacy is what kind of undergirds everything in our lives, what makes our lives meaningful and worth living. So when we're fighting to survive, when we're fighting for enjoyable, meaningful lives, um, yeah, according to how I've understood intimacy in the book, that is what we're fighting for. We're fighting to have lives that we want to live. Um, so that includes fighting for livable wages, fighting to be included in society. It's about belonging and care, um, which, yeah, runs through all of our movements for a better world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And why intimacy rather than love? You know, you've clearly chosen that word very specifically, uh, but it did remind me of other theories. For example, um, you know, you've got the Russian revolutionary feminist and politician Alexandra Kolontai coining this term red love, which feels very kind of powerful and easy to understand. But intimacy feels a more specific version of that word that you've clearly chosen for a reason what what is that reason mm, yeah I was I was thinking about this and whether whether love or intimacy is more specific and yeah I think you could kind of argue it both ways I mean we often talk about how in English we have a dearth of language around love and how other languages have more words for love um and yeah I I was really interested in Colin Ty's work when I was writing the book um, and she conceptualizes love as a form of solidarity and she speaks of uh, this hyphenated word, I think, love comradeship. Um, so, you know, that's, I feel like that's one aspect of how I understand intimacy. Um, but I chose intimacy to be, in a way, I suppose, a more um, amorphous and overarching thing, but also something that has more 
has certain kinds of specificity within it Mm -hmm. um, that more kind of tangibly relates to the material conditions of our lives. So home, um, how we experience death and birth and friendship. So Mm -hmm. it has all these kind of uh, undercurrents from an umbrella term. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I think love has... Uh, yeah, certain connotations that I suppose as a, as a title for the book, it would have been hard to, it would have felt like it might have been about something more specific. Like people often really relate love to um, romantic love or uh, familial love, even though it can mean so much more than that. Yeah. And maybe this is really the argument of the book. I think just from your initial uh, answer, some people might still be a little bit kind of needing to understand exactly what you mean by radical intimacy and why you've written this book is it effectively because you feel like the forms of intimacy that we currently are presented with mainly the nuclear family um prohibit us from having radically different ways of living under capitalism or a different system you know that like when we think about um resisting you know political resistance on the left we often think about um sort of the workplace as a as a kind of uh key site of that change but what if I mean in your argument it strikes me we shifted the terrain of that battle to our our kind of intimate lives um including but beyond the workplace in homes um in 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 bed (laughs) and and you know and and beyond so is that the point that you're this is a kind of family abolitionist argument um that's saying that like the the nuclear family is what's holding us back from radical political resistance yeah in in one sense yeah that is an important aspect of the of the argument um but yeah more broadly it is about kind of coming to terms with the way in which our economic system shapes the way we experience our intimate lives uh i suppose in a sense raising consciousness around that um rather than accepting um the extremely kind of delimited versions of intimacy which we are permitted um and increasingly not even permitted in in society as it stands and yeah that is about the nuclear family uh very much so um but also about other ways that we organize our lives um which often do kind of yeah come back to the dominance or at least ideological dominance of the nuclear family um and what that um shuts down in terms of our possibilities for affiliation, our possibilities for solidarity, um, and how that is and has been historically very helpful um, for capitalism. Mm -hmm. So you argue that the ways that we relate to each other or our normative modes of relating and living, I think you say, fail to meet our intimate needs. And I could quickly imagine lots of examples of this you know people that I know that that have housemates whose names they barely know who kind of subsist on water cooler chats with their colleagues um you know or even as we saw in uh in the I newspaper recently a Fleet Street editor saying that he had no friends at all because he only needed his wife um have we normalized some kind of crazy low level of everyday intimacy Yes, I think <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely a motivation for writing the book. Uh, the the extent to which we've normalised such a such a dearth of connection, such a dearth of intimacy, and such a contracted um, kind of network of care um, and commitment to each other, um, and you know, when it's 
we spend so little time thinking about, it seems, how we can raise that bar for each other and for ourselves. Um, and, you know, hopefully in doing so, create more uh, secure feeling lives um, and also more sturdy movements um, to create a better world in which intimacy is more abundant. Um, yeah, when you were saying, you know, a lot of people have housemates that don't even speak to it, it made me remember when we once... A while ago when we were looking for a new housemate, somebody came uh, to join our household and uh, prospectively to join our household and we we aim to live um, communally as, as far as that's possible. And they, they said, oh, um, I just want to ask, are you a high house? And at first I thought that they were asking about our drug use and we were confused uh, about what they were trying to ask. But what they meant, it turned out, was um, do you say hello to each other? Um, and we thought that they were saying that that wasn't enough, you know, we, I, they wanted more than that, but actually that was their bar, you know, if I move in, will, will we say hi to each other, um, As in, in like, the kitchen? Yeah, that was their expectation that like, please, can we at least say hi? Not like say hi and leave me alone. Absolutely. Okay, no, it like... was, I, I, you know, they were really used to living, uh, in this house share situation where people, yeah, d didn't acknowledge each other and they were just really longing for, for something more. But their bar was like, you know, in this house, do you say hi to each other? And, you know, I feel very lucky and thankfully like that's so far out of, you know, that's so far below the expectations that we have for intimacy in our house or we, you know, attempt to, um, that, yeah, um, but yeah, that kind of distilled it uh, mm -hmm. quite a lot. Um, but yeah, you know, by by the same token, I you know I definitely tried to underscore in the book that this lack of intimacy that many of us experience it's it's we shouldn't really blame ourselves. Um, it is the way society is structured, um, and we look for connection, we look for intimacy in the modes which we've been taught to in the couple form, primarily potentially leading to a nuclear family. Um, and most of us are extremely low on time and energy um, under capitalism. Mm -hmm. So the idea of attempting to explore different forms, attempting to uh, upend the way in which um, things in theory are easiest to uh, do, in terms of intimacy, you know, might feel or actually be just really, really difficult or impossible. Um, and that goes for, you know, just maintaining lots of friendships. We can't blame the individual necessarily that we're, a lot of people are lonely. It's not their fault. No, but I, I mean, I suppose part of the reason that you wrote this book isn't just to describe the problem, but to um, maybe encourage people to think about things differently. And so I know you said that there are material reasons why um, we might not change the way that we formulate our intimate relationships and why we might privilege it, privilege nuclear or monogamous kind of um, relationships over other forms of relating to each other like such as a lack of time or, uh, you know, a housing system that encourages us to live in certain formations. And maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But is there also a degree to which what's holding us back is just a radical lack of imagination and like how books like yours and kind of other abolitionist writers who have quite utopian ways of writing, you know, I think a lot about, um, again, Sophie Lewis wrote a 
essay called Collective Turnoff during the pandemic in which they speak about, uh, you know, intergenerational crashes. And these are all ideas that have been recycled um, uh, by numerous kind of thinkers and stuff. But I think having, like, is part of the aim of your book to persuade people that there's a different way of doing things, people who are held back, not just by material circumstance, but by a deep ingrained attitude that they're kind of replicating through their sort of behavior. Yeah, I think uh, imagination is is essential uh, as well. Um, yes, yes, it is the way society is structured that holds us back from changing our lives, um, you know, both ideologically and materially and, and economically, like those are real barriers to building more abundant uh, forms of intimacy, more expansive networks of care. Um, at the same time, we have psychological barriers as well, um, which which are just as real in, in many ways, um, which are cultural, which are to do with how we've been brought up, uh, our experiences, and the way that's shaped how we experience the world and experience attachment. And yeah, those barriers are real too. And that that is why I think it's incredibly important to expand our imaginations, um, read around, you know, and talk about things. I think conversations are incredibly radical in this respect, whether or not we're able to shift, you know, our everyday realities um, too much. Like these conversations are completely instructive and can be creative forces. Um, you speak to the right person, maybe, you know, maybe somebody's interested in building something different with you, a different kind of life. Um, I love that essay by Sophie Lewis as well. Um, it made me so excited when I first read it. Um, that, yeah, that closing paragraph where she writes about, um, yeah, this utopian, really collective, communal, loving society. Um, and even if certain things might be off limits because of really, you know, sad realities potentially of the limits of our lives, of the limits of our resources. That imaginative work I think is completely essential and it will it will inform our lives no matter what, even if, you know, we don't get to build the commune that we might want to imagine with our friends. I think those ideas and the um, the ethos, the values, the the beauty that might go into that imagination can you know, in seedling ways, inform what we actually do do with our lives. I think for me, it's just knowing that there are other like-minded people out there. You know, um, we recently saw each other at the queer platonic co-parenting meetup. There was one in London recently. I went along after reading a piece by you on navaramedia.com, which everyone should read, um, and, and bumped into you there. I think they've also got events around the country. But that, for me, that event was so powerful just in exposing that whilst there I was thinking that oh, all my friends are just like settling down and having kids and like doing the the like traditional thing. Actually, there's a bunch of other people who um, rather than just like reject having kids, you know, I've got, I guess my friends fall into two camps broadly. It's like people who are settling down and having kids, moving in with their monogamous partner and that's the end of the story, happily ever after. Um, or, you know, the people who are like, I'm not having kids, 
um like that's not for me don't put a kid within 10 feet of me the end and like I don't feel like I fall into either of those camps like I feel someone like someone who's um deeply interested in the project of um child rearing and like the kind of uh reproduction not of oneself but of like a kind of um of, of a political project as much as anything. Um, and, and, you know, we can't just let the right have all the babies and raise the next generation of Tories. That's kind of how I feel about it. But at the same time, I feel petrified of the prospect of being a kind of uh, mum in the kind of conventional sense of the word and like having taking a huge amount of the childcare responsibility, um, being really isolated socially, suffering quite possibly from postpartum uh, depression um, or psychosis, you know, like all of this stuff absolutely terrifies me. I don't want to live in that claustrophobic environment either, but we, I, we, and well, through you, I have accessed a sort of a, a middle way, um, which is a group of people that are like looking to, to, to parent or to raise children in um, radically different ways. And I wonder like whether you could say a little bit more about like what sort of purpose politically those kind of groups serve um, and maybe personally for you, what sort of influence it's had on your politics. Mm, yeah, I think that event we, the, we went to, the queer platonic co-parenting event was a really unique space um, in terms of get-togethers that you know it's it was political but it wasn't explicitly political and um one of the things I found most amazing about it um there was a part of the event where well it was kind of speed meeting so you went you went to meet person um after person that you don't know and and you shared your ideas about uh parenting your ideas about what you what you might be up for in terms of parenting um but more often than not, it was people having quite exploratory conversations. And it kind of struck me um, that a lot of people going to the event didn't have any friends outside of that. Well, they didn't have any friends in that space, but potentially they would make friends, but they didn't have any friends in their own lives that would even consider a form outside of the nuclear family in terms of raising children. So in that sense, I think that event was extremely radical in terms of building affiliations and building uh, new networks of, yeah, friendship even among people who do have the will to explore new forms of, whether we call it family or not, new forms of kinship, um, but they truly don't have the people around them who would be up for doing it with them. And I think, you know, it's it's really when I have these conversations with people, it's it's so common to hear people say, you know, I would do things differently and that, that would be my preference. But if no one else wants to, you know, we can't do the, these things on our own. Um, and people do need belonging and they do need a sense of kinship and people will take what's, what's available also. Um, so, yeah, I think that space was incredibly radical. And, yeah, I feel similarly to you about um, child rearing. I really do not relate to the idea that, yeah, keep babies away from me, don't like, you know, there was, I think there was a, a Twitter discourse recently about whether it was okay to say you don't like babies and you don't like children. I think it's an interesting question. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think it's really okay to say you don't like babies and you don't mm. like children. I think we all have a responsibility mm -hmm. for young people. Um, and 
I was thinking about it in relation to quite, you know, I suppose still the idea of being, um, there used to be this sad idea of the, the childless woman or whatever, and then it became this feminist kind of reclamation to, to say you're a child-free woman, yeah. child-free person. Um, and I think there's a certain sense in which that isn't, you know, I don't think that's a radical position. It was, and it, it is in the sense that, like, we want to completely affirm the fact that women and, and everyone can have a meaningful life without biologically reproducing, absolutely. And that, obviously, the feminist movement um, has done vital work on delinking biology from destiny and um, the fact that women's lives are inherently meaningful beyond reproduction and motherhood um, and that no woman must be a mother. But moving beyond that, how can we reconceive parenthood and motherhood whereby, you know, we can be liberated and we can be carers beyond gender? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always, it's always struck me that people who, well, so first of all, to the point of people who say that they hate kids, I read what they're saying uh, a lot of the time, unless they're like genuinely sociopaths who like hate people because they're young, um, as, uh, as saying, I resent the idea that I need to care um, for children as part of my like biological destiny. And, and I refuse the terms of that kind of mandate. And I think there's something interesting related here going on with the kind of feminist reclamation of the spinster figure, whatever, that like actually child-free women are liberated from children and like, you know, whether or not that means you hate children or you just have rejected responsibility for them, fine. But part of me wants to say, you have accepted the terms of engagement here because either it's have children in a nuclear family or reject children and be child-free, a spinster, hate children. These are not the only two options, you know? Um, This is like a kind of almost like a binary in the same way as gender has been portrayed as binary. And you know, in the same way that the, the, uh, the kind of a previous wave of feminism said, actually, women can be whatever they want to be. Um, a new generation of feminists is saying, actually, what if we deconstruct the category of woman? What if we deconstruct the category of parent? Um, and think a bit about like, uh, whether there's actually a bit of flex in these categories so that you don't have to either reject children or embrace children, reject femininity or embrace it. But, uh, but say like, actually I'm going to reflect on the constructedness of this category altogether and who it serves, which I guess in the case of both womanhood and motherhood is the same end, right? Is like patriarchal capitalism. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Uh, An increasing number of my friends, especially queer women, like to say that they'd like to be fathers, but they wouldn't like to be mothers. Yeah, or that they're more interested in in the idea of being a dad than being a mum. I think the term that came up quite a lot about queer platonic co-parenting meetup we were at was spunkle, which I really enjoyed. Um, But yeah. Um, Yeah, and yeah, prior to this conversation, I was thinking about, yeah, the distinction between mothering and motherhood. And it occurred to me that to mother uh, is usually understood to mean to care for um, and to nurture. And to father is usually understood as to impregnate somebody. 
Um, and I was like, am I just thinking this, um, that this is the way things are? Or is this, I wonder what, you know, the dictionary would say. Um, and the dictionary says, to mother is the process of caring for children as their mother or caring for people in the way that a mother does. And to father is to become the father of a child by making a woman pregnant. That is, that's the Cambridge Dictionary, um, and which is bleak um, and really telling. And I think it's really important. And according to those definitions, then how can we all be mothers um, beyond gender if we're understanding that as, as caring for people, nurturing people, nurturing the next generation? Um and how can we do that in ways that feel liberatory for adults and children? You know, of, of course, for many of us, it's, it's quite horrifying. It's really horrifying, especially for women, the notion of potentially of being a mother in, in society is how it's organized. Like, I definitely remember when I was kind of younger and I, I hadn't um, maybe come into my feminist politics as much, but I kind of had this idea that I would want to be a mother one day but it also made me feel panicked and sad and I didn't really know why. And now I understand why, because it's, you know, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, but I think for me anyway, um, I'm, I'm more interested in looking at how we can make it less hard and more liberatory and, uh, you know, an in, an enjoyable and yes, still hard, but experience of, of caring than therefore eschewing the idea that we might care for children. And of course, ultimately, if, if somebody doesn't want to opt in to care for a child, that is absolutely their prerogative. But I would hope we could imagine at least a society in which in which we all care for children in one way or another. Yeah, I think that's like, that's a very kind of like compassionate, I think, way of putting it. Sometimes I do get a bit frustrated with uh, the idea that some people, you know, it, if you don't want to care for kids, that's just your choice. Like you do you and I'll do me. It's like, well, we can't really run a society like that. Like if we if we genuinely think that like care is an essential part of human life then and we all need to receive it we we know that we all need to receive it then we all need to give it as well um maybe there's a question as to whether everyone needs to give care to children obviously we're talking about children probably partly because we're in our early 30s and this we've all got a fucking baby brain but um but obviously we care for other people in our lives as well friends family members older people people of ne with needs of all kinds people who are disabled but I do think everyone has a responsibility to care and not just like a moral one, like everyone needs to care, but uh, a political one, like care is a political prerogative, uh, a political, not a political prerogative, in fact, a political, uh, you know, imperative, that's what I mean. And I and I wonder how, you know, we, we insert that fact that like, if we are to build a radically different society, then it, care needs to be seen as imperative. Um, into like leftist discourse where like just the word care often conjures, you know, like ju like judgmental looks and eye rolls and like, and is seen as like a soft subject compared to like labor disputes and so on. How do we make the care imperative part of left-wing discourse? Yeah, I mean, it comes back to feminist politics, care is feminized labor. 
it has historically been and, and remains much easier for cis straight men to issue uh, caretaking roles, you know, whether or not they biologically father children, that, you know, that has to change. Um, whether it is bringing up a child or caring for people with, with other forms of needs, we all have an imperative to care for each other. And yeah, I don't think the notion of the freedom that might come with being child-free is something that we can celebrate to radical ends. We all have a responsibility to care for each other. And that is not compatible with uh, a certain form of individualism, which might come with not caring, I suppose, not not nurturing. Mm. And as you say, that's, that's mutual. Mm. Um, and maybe like a lot of people... Uh, who are most active in political movements, who are kind of generally younger people with fewer childcare responsibilities or care responsibilities generally, are the people who can make these kinds of, who can do this kind of deprioritizing of care because they themselves haven't experienced what it is to need care, like as an adult. Um, and so it's like, it's kind of we're in this dangerous situation where like political priorities are being set by people who don't really fully personally understand the the value of care and it's going to be too late by the time they do. Absolutely. Um, and as is often the case, you know, queer movements, feminist movements, sex worker rights movements are really instructive on what it looks like to organise care beyond the structures that we've been handed, um, people who've experienced a dearth of care from the nuclear family, from from society, from people around them, are and have been building up the skills, um, building up structures, building up concepts that allow us to imagine different forms of care. The idea that we can we can reparent each other, we can we can mother each other, um, to the extent that that feels like something that people want or need is is really beautiful and you know adults adults also need nurturing in different ways on the practicalities of what makes it difficult to to do intimacy differently i just want to talk about housing uh, because i just think this is such a major part of the problem our homes are built for families <laughs> you know our homes are are built for two parents two kids um and like multi uh, occupancy houses I mean in my experience are for the most part pretty awful places to live and that's why we've had to introduce HMO licensing um, which many landlords don't even adhere to how much is this problem and and indeed imagination imaginative solutions to this problem a problem of housing if we had houses where they you could have like modular you know cohabiting with like you know separate living areas but then a shared living area you know if we could imagine different ways of like formulating our housing would this solve the problem i think it would be very transformative and yeah i spend a lot of my days currently imagining like housing and imagining like as you as you describe this uh imagine this like building where my friends could all live in our own flats and we'd have our own space but then we'd have this kitchen and then we'd you know yeah like the possibilities are so scant and that is um by design and also uh because 
nobody can afford houses and you know creative solutions yeah there there are i there are examples but the common denominator in my experience of people being able to build really sustainable solutions that allow us to live together in more communal ways is having a large amount of money um mm-hmm. <laughs> that is very helpful mm-hmm. um or at least you know yeah the possibility of actually purchasing a house um there was a great uh event the other weekend that I went to which was a a gathering of existing housing co-ops and it was an information sharing event with i suppose also that like speed meeting element which maybe that'll be a yeah really helpful form in terms of bringing ideas and also um resources together to to build these futures um but yeah it was like an information sharing event really and you know there are there are routes to different forms of housing but yeah time resources energy um money uh, are are really important and difficult to access in order to to build those other futures and as you say it's written into the way the housing system works currently that the HMO licensing the two people on a mortgage only situation it's it's very difficult these questions of intimate Uh, lives and how we arrange them are profoundly personal you know and and you can be a family abolitionist and write out family abolitionist books all you want but ultimately like your aim is to change your own configuration of your life and that means bringing along all of your friends and family but it's so difficult to talk to people about this um you know it's so difficult like to 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 open up um, discussions about potential alternatives to the nuclear family. You know, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine how if a friend, which many friends have complained to me about the claustrophobia of living with their partner or the fear of becoming a, a sort of parent in a nuclear family, you know, it's, it's inconceivable that I might say to that person, maybe you just shouldn't do that then. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think there are there are friends that I have sort of like gently floated this with, or maybe less gently they they might argue, but I I just find that it's so difficult to to like to have these conversations and so in, and quickly very inflammatory and um, emotive and um, and yeah the the personal is the terrain on which we need to have these conversations you know like you need to be having these conversations with your friends if you do want to co-parent in a different formation. But how do we, how do we do that? How do we interrupt that process of nuclear family formation? Um, if not through having these difficult conversations with our friends? Mm. Yeah. I think you have to come at it. Yeah. From, from below and above, you know, society, I, I believe the fundamental structures, um, of our society need to change before, you know, we can, totally reorganize our social forms at the same time those of us who who can feel able or are interested to must have these conversations with our friends and I agree it can feel really difficult and I think that is because what we might be disrupting if we challenge or even so much as question someone's intimate life you know what they've chosen to do it's yeah profoundly personal profoundly sensitive and might be these are the ways in which we find our our feet in the world these are the ways we we put down roots in the world um so it's incredibly destabilizing to to question 
marriage, monogamy, the nuclear mm. family for a lot of a lot of people. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. But I think yeah. thinking about why it's so disruptive for those of us, it's really disruptive for, and for those of us doing the the challenging is is extremely important. Um, and I think that's a lot about what we're what needs we're seeking to get met in our being together. And if people feel that our needs for care, security, love, belonging won't be met outside of these forms, then if they, you know, if they truly believe that or if they unconsciously believe that or if they feel that to be true, it's really understandable that there are a lot of fearful responses right. because what else, you know, what else, where else am I going to get those needs met? Yeah. And uh, I, I feel that coming up in myself sometimes. Mm. Obviously, we're, we're all, we all exist in in the society and we all exist in this culture. And, you know, there is a certain panic that I noticed coming up among certain friends as well that like, okay, but if people are going to start falling off and really reorganizing their lives around a romantic partner and children, and that being the complete nucleus of, of their life, then we've kind of got to all do it or some of us are going to get left behind. <laughs> and that's that could be really terrifying. So, but yeah, all the more reason to have these conversations, all the more reason to attempt to make real commitments to each other mm. um, that aren't centered solely on this one form. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about how there's a kind of group think to it or like a, a herd mentality where um, one person or a few people start to have children and then people start to think, well, like I better get on this train or it's gonna leave the station without me. Um, and I think also when people come to choose the nuclear family, it is, as you say, because it's sort of better the devil you know. like. I know that nuclear family is gonna make me unhappy in lots of ways. I may have seen it in my own parents. I've read the news about how most people um, who face sexual abuses by an intimate partner and face child abuses by a person in their family. But what else is on offer? And so like you kind of have to create those alternative offerings um, and it, like, you know, organize the party and invite people to it. But it's difficult because some people have to organize the party. <laughs> and so it has to start somewhere. It can't just, someone has to at some point like be brave enough. And I think that's like where I really admire your work and like, and just your kind of praxis and that you're also trying to live out this like way of thinking about things. Because it's a kind of, there does need to be someone who's like trailblazing, like for everyone else to follow. Cause like, no one, it's not gonna happen all at once. It's gonna happen as a trickle and then a flood, hopefully. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> I wanna talk a little bit about friendship because I mean, intimacy, I guess, is this catch all term which uh, you use quite deliberately to include romantic and platonic um, forms of relating. But I think um, there's something really interesting just to talk a little bit more about, about why friendship specifically um, is so devalued in our in our intimate lives and like the ways in which it kind of threatens capitalist logics of affiliation like marriage or parenthood um i think uh an academic called ben vile um tweeted something a, a long time ago which i still think about um which was uh, i think they said something along the lines of friendships are just so inherently 
anti-capitalist because they're fundamentally unproductive. You know, who more than your friend is the person that texts you saying, clock off work early, like we're going for a drink, like, you know, or, or encourages you to be less productive and have more fun. So yeah, tell me a little bit about like why friends are so threatening to the kind of capitalist frameworks of, of relationship. Well, yeah, firstly, maintaining friendship goes against the capitalist story for our proper affiliations. Um, the story really goes or is supposed to go, you know, you, you have your friends and, and then you meet a partner and then you may marry and friendships fall away and you see each other at weddings uh, and then eventually maybe at funerals, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe a few times in between. Um, but and that is so sturdy. It's not true of my community. It's not. It's not true of everybody, of course. But it. I also observe that it, it's really resilient. That um, that story for people's relationships. Um, so, yeah. So, firstly, I think maintaining an ongoing commitment to friendship can be a radical thing to do because it is resisting that shrinking of our intimacies, shrinking of our commitments. Um, and yeah, like, I think it has the potential to be a subversive force. Um, if we expand our, our solidarities, then we can have more power, um, than being, than existing in this really small unit. Um, in a way, I see this very clearly when it comes to uh, anti-racism and the kind of discourse around anti-Semitism and Jews don't count and the labor anti-Semitism crisis, much of which I think was characterized by a sense of sort of the self-interest of the group and that the group's main interest should be itself. Um, and that one uh, ought to have the interests of others to whom one is ethnically, racially, familiarly related as one's priority. Whereas friendship in the broader sense encourages us to um, care about inherently the welfare of people to whom we owe, we, we have no connection potentially other than our own like for them. And that like, we, we are not only for ourselves and for an in-group, um, but potentially for the rights of everyone. And that that's like uh, a deeply um, kind of disruptive way of thinking about um, kind of, I guess, like political allegiance. That like, we're not just looking out for people because they share our uh, identity, but because they share our fundamental interests in and our political values, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Like at best, I think that's what friendship can be. Um, obviously, at the same time, friendship, it can become, can form exclusionary groups. Um, and also a lot of people uh, don't have friends and struggle to, to make friendships for reasons that are linked to forms of marginalization in society. But at best, I think friendship has this possibility of being this disruptive force Um and this really wily form of allegiance that you can't really keep a hold of because it, it is um, kind of, yeah, radically kind of uh, constituted. Um, and friendship can be like, I was thinking of it as like an infiltrator as well of the private logic of other forms of relationships. So there's a there's the logic that the couple form should be this private entity and the nuclear family should be this private entity, whereas friendship at best can infiltrate infiltrate those private logics 
um, whereby the kind of insulinness of the couple form, the insulinness of the nuclear family, has the capacity to be dangerous, um, especially for women and in families and for children as well, especially, but not exclusively. Um, friendship, at best, can interrupt um, that privacy and, and yeah, be a protective force. This kind of leads us to this question of children and responsibility um, and ownership. Like we think a lot about, I suppose, and, and everyone who's listening will be very familiar with the idea of marriage as a form of ownership. And well, you know, traditionally, I mean, it, it still kind of literally is in, in many ways and in, in, in terms of kind of property, the division of assets and so on. Um, but yeah, wives being the property of their husbands was obviously a very normal way of thinking about marriage until relatively recently when we um, convinced ourselves that actually it was just a romantic thing and there's a bit of paper that we sign, but I'm not really sure what that's for. Um, but property, I think, comes up really strongly in um, sort of heteronormative nuclear familial ideas of children and owning one's children, right? Um, and 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 I think we see this really strongly when it comes to recent uh, debates. <laughs> In inverted quotes, I don't think we should uh, dignify them with the with the term debate. But um, you know, with recent media attacks um, on trans children's rights, right? So you you get all these panicked uh, pieces in the the Times and what have you saying, my child has changed their gender and I don't know what to do about it. And attempts to block trans children's rights to trans healthcare, for example, coming from a deeply rooted sense that is totally normalized in, 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 in kind of nuclear family formations, that your children are your property <laughs> rather than parents being stewards of children's well-being, guardians of children who have their own set of independent rights until their adulthood, at which point they take on a different role. Like, tell us a bit about how we think that children, that we own children. Yeah, proprietarian approaches to parenthood are, as you say, completely naturalized. Um, I think it only takes verbalizing it for, you know, most people would agree that people do um, feel like they own their children and probably defend the idea that that they own their children in one way or another. Um, and yeah, it's absolutely really crystallized um, in the situation for trans children and trans people in terms of parents asserting their right over their children's mm. bodies. And this idea that our biological family has some kind of ownership over our bodily autonomy and bodily agency, I think, you know, actually extends into adulthood somehow as well. You know, people often consider what their parents might think about what they're doing as an as an adult body as well in the world, um, which is, yeah, quite disturbing um, that because we're progeny, we have like, uh, our parents might have some claim over our physical body as well as, well as our life decisions. Mm. Um, I hadn't actually heard of this person, I don't think particularly before I saw this, this clip, but uh, I saw a clip on Twitter of, the actor Lawrence Fox turned reactionary politician. Yeah, yeah. Okay, unfortunately, um, a lot of person. our audience will probably have yeah, heard of him Lawrence already. Fox. Yeah, uh, but this particular, I, or yeah, I think I was talking about his child uh, who had learned about consent at school. Have you seen this clip? No, I haven't. Seen no, that. so he he was um, 
he's really against relationships and sex education. Uh, and he's especially in this particular clip talking about how it is a complete travesty that children are taught about consent um, and what they're taught consent is. And he he relates uh, telling his child to give him a goodnight kiss and his child saying, you have to ask my consent. And he's completely scandalized by this idea that the child had learnt to um, talk about consent. And so he was on, I don't know, he was on some, um, you know, right-wing podcast uh, saying, you know, how it's... Um, wokeness gone mad, etc. And it just really struck me. And he said, you know, I, I couldn't believe it was so weird. And I said to him, I'm your father, um, which was really, it's really creepy. And just obviously, completely in keeping with, with patriarchy, the rule of the father. Um, and yeah, then he announces his campaign to, to, to stop this nonsense. But yeah, I think that's probably concerningly a pretty mainstream opinion um, that, you know, we do own our children. In my research for the book, I came across uh, a quote from... Uh, in 1979, there was a conference called the Third World Lesbian and Gay Conference, and it had this uh, list of stated aims and intentions. And one of them was that all the children, something like all the children of lesbians will be the responsibility of all of us, of all of... And I just think that's really a beautiful notion. And surely a safer and more abundant notion of care for, for all children I think, though, that there is, you know, we've we've criticised the nuclear family a lot in this conversation. And uh, I do think there's something interesting about how there are features of the nuclear family, uh, well, including loyalty being one of them, that, that we might actually think of as quite valuable and as wanting to not just like do away with, but apply, like apply to an imagined future. Um, and, and yeah, one of those values is kind of this idea that no human being is disposable. None of us, if, uh, if our, well, at least most of us, if someone that we love in our family, if our, our sibling, for example, did something really, you know, hurtful to us, um, would would think immediately to kind of dispose of that relationship. Like our first thought would be to repair the damage that had been done um, and to investigate why it had been done and to, to, to kind of, in quite an abolitionist way, um, to think beyond um, the punitive. And I, and I wonder whether you could tell me a bit more about how, um, whether like what features, what positive features, what helpful and um, liberatory features of the nuclear family um, we might, want to hold on to um as we move as we move beyond it yeah absolutely and I mean that that's the way I I look at it in one of the chapters of the book um yeah thinking about uh transformative justice and how yeah how notions of um compassion and forgiveness and and repair might function within the family and on the basis that uh, it's usually around loyalty and devotion that, uh, you know, our uncle says something harmful or offensive or even does something violent, you know, within the family form. As you say, it's often conceded that we're going to work through that or we're going to remain in each other's lives. We're going to move to a better future in this relationship or something. Um, and it occurred to me that, you know, people even working and thinking within abolitionist politics might have 
some more loyalty, faithfulness to biological kin than they do to people in movements um, who might be seen as more easy to set aside to, um, you know, just just chuck out and and be seen as disposable. At the same time, I think a lot of the the values that we might want to hold on to and celebrate um, and reformulate uh, in a radically intimate future um, in the family, such as devotion, loyalty, commitment, forms of compromise and sacrifice out of care for each other. Um, they are things that marriage and the nuclear family and biological kinship espouses, but often doesn't deliver on anyway. Mm-hmm. So yes, we kind of want to think about what what are people looking for, what are people attempting, or what do people think they're getting um, via these forms of intimacy um, that we want to actually make possible. Right, right. And 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 I guess like that's kind of where I wanted to end the conversation um, by thinking a bit about like, we're trying to um, encourage people to make a leap of faith. Um, and in order to do that, we need a pitch that will inspire them. And, you know, we talked about some of the thinkers that do that kind of utopian thinking, including you. And I, I sort of wonder, you know, what, how do you tell people the water's warm, come and swim? You know, like how, what do you say to those people about how their lives might be different if they indulge for a moment the possibility of, of kind of radical intimacy? What's the, what's the sell? I don't know if I have an elevator pitch on the one hand because Sophie Lewis says about um, family abolition, don't try this at home, kids, which I think is a helpful intervention in that I'm not, you know, that interested in in convincing people to transform their personal lives. I think if you have the will, if you have the means, if you have the energy, if you have the community around you to do it, let's experiment and let's build different ways of being together. I have a lot of enthusiasm for that. But yeah, the way society's organized, that's not possible for a lot of us. um, And it might not be desirable enough for enough of us, um, the way society is organized. Nevertheless, um, yeah, the possibilities of reorganizing uh, our intimate lives, I do think, should make people really excited if they dare to really engage with it, I suppose. And it is it is somewhat daring because it involves questioning, deconstructing, potentially unlearning um, the fundamental building blocks of how we are supposed to, how we might even believe we should build our lives. Um, and that inevitably could be, inevitably will be a... Uh, anxiety-inducing, fearful kind of prospect for a lot of people. Um, But the more we talk about it, the more we build connections with each other that allow us to not only imagine but experiment with with new ways of being together, then I think the the rewards will, you know, would quickly reveal themselves. Yeah, off the top of my head, I, I just kind of thought, like, I think a lot of people either have... Well, people have memories, potentially, of, of their childhoods. Some of us actually don't have loads of memories of our childhoods. But what, what memories we do have, you know, we could have we could have grown up in a household that was really fraught um, and felt lacking in care and felt 
like quite a typical family household, you know, quite troubled. And what would our childhood imaginations be longing for, um, I think is an interesting question. Or if we were so lucky as to have been brought up in a household that felt abundant and loving and with so much care and joy, what were our childhood imaginations experiencing there and, and what made that possible? And kind of, yeah, bringing that, either that, that lack and longing um, of our childhood selves um, or what made our childhood selves feel so safe and um, cared for, I think is an interesting question when we're conceiving how we might want to build our intimate lives um, as adults. Mm, I think that's a really good point and goes back to our ideas about like thinking about children's agency and children as as people with with desires for how to construct their lives as well. What would the child versions of ourselves have wanted? Thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us on Navarra FM. It's been great to have you on. And I hope everyone goes and reads your book, Radical Intimacy, out now with Pluto Press. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm.